Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to Flight Through Entirety, the only Doctor Who podcast tired of all this talk about Daleks and just wanting to know where to collect our prize money from. I'm Nathan. I'm Todd. I'm James. And I'm elegantly bronzed for this episode. Well, we've spent an exhausting week trapped on that spaceship surrounded by megabytes of CGI pedal bins. Still, I imagine the Doctor will be along to rescue us any second now. So, while we're waiting, let's talk about the Series 1 finale, The Parting of the Ways. this episode begin so they do the reprise and it cuts straight into the next into the opening credits no no into the next scene so it literally just flows as if it's one scene like they just cut that scene in half my first lot of notes here say the missiles launched at the tardis and there's an impossible explosion a la survival and the doctor and motorbikes but that's not the first shot, is it? Yeah, but we don't actually see the Doctor sort of get into the TARDIS and set the coordinates for anything or anything like that. We're on the ship, aren't we? And Rose is being told to predict the Doctor's movements and she refuses to do it. Predict. And then she says, oh, you know, the TARDIS has no defences. If you fire a missile at it, he'll die. And then they say, you have predicted correctly. <laughs> so the Daleks actually do great dialogue when Russell is writing. You know, we saw it with Sherman as well. But this is the first kind of mm. big giant Dalek story that has more than one Dalek and has good, fun, excellent dialogue. You don't need Davros along to do that. Yes, and it's exactly what Russell wanted. But he loved those Century 21 back page strips. And they were pithy and ironic one-liners. There was wit in those as well. The Daleks are very boring when written by Terry Nation. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think, <laughs> Maybe I think when spread out, but they have great little moments. I think they're funny in the chase. Yeah. Especially that one digging itself out of the sand. (laughs) (laughs) It might be the fact that, you know, a lot of Terry Nation's Dalek stuff is in the mid-60s, so it's a different feel to television. So I can understand where you're coming from with that. But the Daleks themselves here, up until the Emperor is introduced have their own little personalities, they're willing to converse, they're willing to move back with their eye stalks and back away from the Doctor and and all that sort of thing. So it's nice to see them have some sort of characteristics other than just be Davros's army. I think they're super interesting here too. Russell has occasionally sort of had digs at religion, you know, Religion was one of the weapons that was forbidden on Platform 1 in the end of the world. And here the Daleks use all of this explicitly religious language about blasphemy. It's it's the biggest thing about this story and the thing I wanted to bang on about. Yeah, go on. Because it really does feel like it's the Hillsong Church or whatever you have in the UK. (laughs) But it's the Daleks are Pentecostals. (laughs) I I had originally thought that given that this is a post-9-11 series of Doctor Who, that maybe we were thinking that they were sort of fundamentalist terrorists but watching it this time all i could get was that they were kind of conservative fundamentalist christians super far right bush family (laughs) acolytes yeah yeah Yeah. they would have voted for trump in 2016 yeah the big killer line is the line about how they hate their own flesh they hate their humanity they've been made from human beings Mm. and they hate the fact that they're human and subject to sort of human frailty. There's also that incredibly cheeky line, which I think has been observed heaps of times before, when Rose says the Daleks are half human and the Daleks respond with that is blasphemy, which is exactly what Gallifrey Bass said, I think, when the Doctor said he was half human uh, <laughs> in the TV of movie. Of course that's what he's lampshading. <laughs> of course it is. Those lines around there are really, really good and the filleting line. Yeah. Oh. Sifted and filleted. It's even the oh, words yeah. that are used. It's like the way it's, it's enunciated. Like yeah. It, it's very visceral. Well, it's poetry. I mean, he's chosen those words not just for their meaning but also for their sound, I think. It's very well written. And also words that you wouldn't usually hear from a Dalek. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Dalek language is usually quite... Boring. Well, Seek, locate, yes, yes, well, scientific, factual. Yes. Yeah. It's not descriptive, it's not poetic, like you say. Yeah, I mean, so this is an amazing kind of reconception of the Daleks because we've talked about them being communists before and about being Nazis. We've had them as 
Amway know, salesmen. Amway salesmen, <laughs> consumerists and so mm. on. And now they're the religious. And I think that when Russell introduces old monsters to his new series, he does try and find something new to say about them. He certainly does. Yeah. And it's always about the abuse and misuse of modern technology, the ease and fun and the way it was meant to bring us all together and all that it's, we've allowed it to do in the way that we debase the fundament of anything that we get a hold of, say Big Brother or whatever, is meant to you know be familial and bring people together, and it's actually just become the Hunger Games. Yeah, or, or the Cybermen next series. Yeah, more of that next year. Yeah. What do we think about the Emperor? <gasps> Richard has opinions. <laughs> Look, I'm okay with it. Well, it's I think some- he's meant to be the US, isn't he? Huh. He's yeah. really meant to be. Cultural imperialism. George, George W. Bush. James. Yeah. I prefer the original. What, the white pepper pot? The lady emperor. The black and white emperor Dalek from, from Evil, Evil of the, the Daleks. Because it looks so different. This one just looks fat. Though, it is a Mike Tucker prop. I think it's amazing. It's beautiful. Yes. Um, and is huge, like, for a prop. How yeah. big was it? It's it's a large scale miniature. It's about six feet tall. I guess when I was watching this and looking at that on the Blu-ray, all the Daleks around it, not just the ones floating in the air, but in the background doing little things, I never realised how many different ones there were. That's sort of what drew my attention. It's the kind of thing that Terry Nation would always have wanted to do, and he tries to do it in Planet of the Daleks, and they're reduced (laughs) to using the little toy Daleks. Yeah. And it's 10,000 Daleks, astonishingly. So this is a mere half million of them, but they really give that impression. It's amazing. It is like finally having the entire toy box to play with. The Doctor materialises around Rose. And a Dalek. And a Dalek. And a Dalek. That's the first time a Dalek has ever been in the TARDIS. I don't think we've ever materialised around anyone before. Well, that was my point. I was going, is this the first time? Yeah. It's happened again a bunch of times now, I think. I think they've gone there again. But that is the first time. And that's great. You know, the Doctor does something amazing. I think it's in TV comic. We need to... to Ask Gary Russell, friend of the podcast. I'm pretty sure it's happened in one of the comics yeah, in the seventies. The, the te- televisual antecedent of that is Time Legopolis. But Time Monster. Oh yeah, Legopolis. Because yeah, yeah. Time Monster is the funniest Doctor Who episode of all time. Materialising around Tardises. Yeah, which sure. is the closest we've ever got. Yeah. Fan. 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 Bang. 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 But it's good. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> You know, the Doctor does something very clever, something that no one who's written for the show before has ever thought of. So, uh, he's bringing his A-game to this rescue, I think. (laughs) And his massive comic back (laughs) catalogue. I really like Eccles in this one. He does Gravitas really beautifully and all the gurning and all the rest of it. It's really nicely referenced in this because you can see you are actually just putting on a mask. It always felt a bit fake and we make lots of jokes. Armando Iannucci spent an entire year making cracks about Christopher Eccleston's gurning on every radio show he was on, the guy who wrote The Thick of It and, you know, In the Loop and all the rest, um, and Veep. So, you know, he's he, but he a massive Doctor Who fan was always joking. And that was the, the parlance of the criticism at the time was that, you know, he really isn't comfortable being humorous and doing work for children. No, 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 you all missed the point and you can see it here. That is his frailty and that is his mask because underneath is just abject horror at what he's seen and utter defeat and... And the feebleness that he feels of just trying to be optimistic, faking it. Yeah. And you can see that. He admits it here. And there are all these moments. We're not at the end yet. But all these little moments that presage the end moments for for Eccleston where you see, oh, I can really see where you've been going with this. And it's very impressive. He goes straight from giving them nul point, like a Eurovision judge. Mm. And then when he gets back into the TARDIS, there's that incredible scene where he's resting his head against the door and listening to the Daleks say exterminate and firing at the TARDIS and just not saying anything and no one comments on it. But it is exactly what you said. It's a mask. All that discomfort Mm. that he's felt with the levity and stuff Mm. all along is really deliberately in service of the character. It's a great point. Like, I mean, that mask is there, obviously, with the whole Delta Wave uh, project and giving people hope, whether it be 
Linda or Jack or Rose and then sending her away and you see that mask slip. Because that, that is what the Doctor does, that, like, he brings people hope. Yeah. And that's not been foregrounded so much in the original series. No, he kind of sidestepped it. Genesis of the Daleks is a good one for that, isn't it? But, yes, he seemed to sort of feel that sacrifice is something people have to make, but he never wanted to face it head on. So they get back to the station and they have to come up with a plan to save Earth and to save the people on the station. Linda is there and our male and female controllers or yeah, programmers. programmers. It's very interesting to watch the Doctor's interactions with Linda, how perhaps awkward they are with Rose looking on. And you also see Rose's a bit of jealousy there, which comes up again later in the series with Martha. Like, it's, I just was found that really intriguing just to see Billy's performance throughout those sequences. It's really rough, isn't it? The Doctor says you could come with me, I think, maybe last episode. But the offer is kind of repeated only in front of Rose. And when she goes off to sort of monitor her station, she actually touches the TARDIS a bit proprietorially as she goes past and Rose sees it. And Rose is kind of a bit sort of self-centred and self-absorbed, I think, as a person. And she only gets worse next look how, year. Look how she treats Mickey. Message is, no, there's nothing here for me. And Mickey yeah. says, what, nothing? She, no, nothing. It's the most callous, cold moment of the whole season for me. He stands there with a broken heart. You, you watched Boomtown, Boomtown this morning. Yeah, but, and, but and we get it again in yeah, this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to hammer it home, you sucker. But... <laughs> <laughs> But, like, the, the, the moment in this episode where she treats him like that and then he and her mother still go out of their way to help her get back yeah. to the future to save the Doctor. Yeah. It shows the quality of those characters. Yeah. Let's talk about that bit. Like, the Doctor tricks Rose into getting into the TARDIS so that she can escape. And Murray Gold conspires with the Doctor uh-huh. as well because the Doctor does this sort of, oh, I've suddenly cracked it. And Murray goes in, like, tries to sell that moment to like, us this as is well. Huge swell of music. And then, as Richard said before, the mask drops once she's safely in the TARDIS because he never intends to see her again. Uh, and he sends her back home. Uh, And there's that breathtaking moment where the Doctor's ghost speaks to her in the TARDIS saying he's dead. That just gives me chills. Every single time that speech happens, I still vivid in my memory, the moment that ghost turns to her. Yeah. He turns to camera. All the interference patterns are gone. It's just Christopher Eccleston. And the voice treatment changes as well. It does. Like it it suddenly becomes real. It's so incredibly beautiful and it's really sold. And I think, you know, for a little while, even though I've watched this hundreds and hundreds of times, because it is, as I said before, possibly my favourite Doctor Who story, for a moment I thought, oh, he, they're never going to see one another again. <laughs> you know, that's really what's being said at that moment. Have a good life. Have a good life. Do that for me. Have a fantastic life. <laughs> so beautiful. Oh. Chills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, we just cut to those chickens revolving, <laughs> revolving in that revolting um, rotisserie thing in the restaurant where they're eating chips. The I love yeah. I'm just thinking, I is love- that a predicate of, of Eccles' future career now? He's told them all to knob off. Well, yes. I, think, I think Russell was being a complete bitch. <laughs> I, was, I just laugh every time. Oh, They've gone off market. Yeah, they do little oh. tubs of um, coleslaw. coleslaw. Not very good or something. It tastes <laughs> kind of clinical. <laughs> so, like, the pizza shop, you know, have you seen the new pizza shop in whatever road? Oh, what does it have? Oh, pizza. You know, like, it is the most <laughs> banal conversation ever conducted as part of a television program. And Rose has just left, you know, the year 200 thousand where Daleks are destroying the world and they're just talking absolute nonsense and that speech that thing is wonderful and she's trying the whole time not to seem arrogant that's a really good point yeah because she is like that to Mickey later yeah. on but at this point the ma- her was- mask hasn't dropped yeah yeah, yeah. 
I mean, you talk about, Richard, that horrible speech that inspires Mickey to kind of just say, all right, I'm going to help her go. Mm. Uh, And, of course, the speech that she gives to Jackie is about her father from Father's Day. She was that little girl. Oh, Yeah, it's it's wonderful. But it's also incredibly cruel and it's it's – the character of Rose pushing against the people that she loves because they ground her in in the normal everyday world and she could be safe and happy there. Yeah. And she she needs to not be. She needs to alienate them so that she can get back to like, what she wants? Well, yes. Yeah, she's, 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 like you say, Nathan, incredibly selfish character. She's super emotionally manipulative and, like, she's rubbing Jackie's husband's death, you know, rubbing it in her face yeah. in order to get her to go away. It's, is she? Well, I think what's happening here is that Rose thinks that Jackie and Mickey are dragging her back, that they're holding her back. And the reason that she had such a dull life the reason that she nearly decided not to go with the doctor was... They're needing you. Yeah, Mickey and Jackie need me. Yeah. I'm the grown-up here. I'm, you know, doing all the emotional labour. But she's wrong because the two of them are the people who get together and enable her to resume that life. Yes. And yes. I think that they come off just amazingly great in this, and Mickey particularly. But Jackie is wonderful when she comes back with that big, big giant yeah, big yeah, yellow truck. truck. The love they have for her. Yeah. And they're willing to put aside whatever manipulation or feelings to give her what she wants. It's yeah. just incredibly moving. And incredible. And Jackie with that truck and, you know, you've got it for two hours, like Rodrigo or whatever. It's And, and Mickey being able to be there in his little mini trying to get the heart of the TARDIS open. Yeah. It just shows what a character is he is and, and how he has grown yeah. as a character. This is a defining moment. It is. A real pivoting turning point in that character. And the timing of it as well is... It's- He's like, we need something stronger than my little mini. Something like this. <laughs> I think, too, that it is amazing that in a story set in the year 200,000 that the people who end up saving the world, in fact, they don't save the world and we'll get to that, but the people who end up saving the Doctor are just ordinary people on Earth in the present day. And Russell you know, has talked about Planet Zog. We've referenced it many times before. (laughs) Um, That's not what he's interested in. He's interested in people. And for that reason, all of his other season finales are set on Earth in the present day and a big sort of climactic apocalyptic things happening to our world. Here he's set it in the distant future, but it's still our main characters, it's still Jackie and Mickey who actually managed to save the world. And Rose. Yeah. Well, none none of the other characters could save the world because they all bloody die. (laughs) (laughs) Just all keep dying, don't you? Like, literally, the only people who don't die in this episode are... No. Well, no, Jack dies and the Doctor Uh, dies. He gets gets brought back to life. (laughs) But the only characters that... Don't die, uh, Rose. Rose, Mickey, and Jackie. So yeah. our present day contemporaries. Like the, the, yeah, they yeah. are the heart of the show. Um, and it's actually, I think this is the first time since Horror Fang Rock that the entire guest cast is killed off. Yeah. So unfortunately, Linda with a Y is in for the killing zone. Um, I think that's incredible. When the Dalek comes up the window and just the lights flash and you know that they're saying exterminate because of the rhythm with which the lights flash. It's a great misdirection too for classic fans in that, you know, she's in that platform and you're expecting them to come through the door with a, a cutting device, which we've seen numerous times in the classic series, and that's what's happening. But then just that moment when you see it in her eyes, yeah. like close up in her face, and then it's like... You're, you're turning to behind her with the glass. That is just, you just know, well, that's the end. There's also a line in there about the glass being, you know. It's exoglass or something. You know, like, take a, like a meteor to break through that Yeah, or he like says that. it's protected against meteors. That's yeah. what he says. Um, and that 
sells the power of the Daleks. Yeah. Ooh, check. <laughs> um, they, they are so powerful that this thing that's supposed to withstand Meteor Strike is just shattered mm. by them. And that sort of plays into the, the conception of the Daleks in the new series as being all-powerful, yeah. completely invulnerable beings. Besides Linda dying, we've then got Jack and the programmers and all the wannabe winner contestants or people staying on the station down on level zero. And uh, it's really satisfying to see um, the winner of the weakest link get exterminated. We talked about this on a previous episode that Russell writes stories that are very vertical. You know, there's always lifts mm. in them. And uh, he makes it very clear what the Daleks are doing. <laughs> and their only reason to go down there, they don't need yeah. to go down there. Remember, they come in at floor 446 or whatever it is. And they're going to they're they're go up. That's the bit that's protected by the extrapolator's force field. But the only reason they go down is because there's a bunch of people there that they can kill. Yeah. There's no strategic reason for it at all. It's just to show how evil they are. Yeah, and just before she dies, Linda gets to hear that happening. And it's in that scene. And she is so effective. Like, she, she's so broken up by it. And I think, too in the scene just before she dies, you can see her realising that she's about to die. It's so well done. Mm. She's really fantastic. She really is. Yeah. yeah. I, I shed no tears for Roderick's death at all. Um, you astound me. Yes. <laughs> um, he, he, he's all the bad bosses and the weak people we've always known and that's the whole point of his moment or his arc, flat though it is, is yeah. to show us how people who don't have... Anyway, in touch with the humanity, you could say. We've already said that the world that's created by last week's episode is horrible. Mm. And it's sort of told in a slightly comic way because we've got all these sort of parodic versions of our favourite TV shows. But the world is horrifically appalling. It's a terrible place. And Roderick is the sort of person who wins mm. in that world, mm. you know. And so... He's the ultimate winner. Yeah, he's the winner in that world. And so... Every corporate success story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's really interesting that the Doctor's influence on Jack inspires some of those people in that world to take a stand and to fight um, the controllers and also the girl who's the assistant director on The Weakest Link. Yeah, she's the floor manager, oh, sorry. I think, is the name oh, of that character. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> but she's not credited. Oh, isn't she? She's really good. Yeah, they, um, they appear to have accidentally not credited her because she has a pretty main role in both his episodes yeah, but, yeah. but she doesn't appear in the credit suit I love that scene where she is firing bullets at the Daleks and they don't work or they're doing sort of bullet time and she says you lied to me did you notice what the bullets were Todd? It's, it's a revelation of the Daleks <laughs> they're Bastic bullets invented by Eric Sayward himself <laughs> which for the 1985 classic revelation of yeah, the Daleks yeah yeah Orsini uses them we see a Dalek get blown up by Bastic bullets not anymore <laughs> really yeah, oh. yeah yeah how do I miss these things <laughs> how am I missing these things of course, the Delta Wave is a reference to Kinder. Yeah. <laughs> well, I blanked <laughs> that out of my mind. What, what did Delta that do to Delta. Nissa's brain? Yeah, yeah, fried it. <laughs> Exposed <laughs> it to a huge amount of ancestodyne energy. <laughs> <laughs> and saved GNT a paycheck. That <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so the programmers die. There's a nice moment between the, the ongoing little will they go on a date dialogue between the male and female programmer, which I quite like, throughout both episodes. Yeah. Just yeah. to give them a bit of character and a bit of humour in the face of annihilation, I guess. And also to make her death more horrifying yep. because there's someone who to mourn for. And, in fact, mm. their little exchange, which is super trope aware, isn't it? Like, perhaps I should ask <laughs> you out. Is that the title for this yeah. episode? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. Perhaps I should ask you out. Uh, you know, well, then tough. I'm not going to go out with you. And then they smile at each other and she winks. Like, it's a, it's a very sweet, very quickly sweet thing. And she was someone, remember, the Doctor yelled at her last episode 
episode, one of my favourite lines last episode is where the doctor criticises the staff and she says, well, they're just doing their jobs. And he says, well, with that sentence, you've just lost the right yeah. even to speak to me. Yeah. Um, but she's humanised by then and her death's horrifying and so is the male controllers. It's almost fridging, isn't it? She's well, horribly murdered and then it spurs him on to try and kill the Daleks and then he dies as well. Well, yeah. I mean, fridging is more about sort of long-term emotional. No, very know. brief fridging. A fridge. It's an ice tray. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Around this time is one of my favourite moments in the episode, which is when the Daleks enter floor 495. Somebody says, what's on floor 95? And then they come in. And I completely forgotten. And there's the android taking on the Daleks. I just love it when she tells them you are the weakest link and, you know. But then the fact that she has to say, you are the weakest link before firing, <laughs> gets, her ki- well, gets, gets, her, gets her head blown off. Yeah. <laughs> it is also just the incredible comedy world that was created in the beginning of Bad Wolf gets to have a little brief go at the Daleks mm. before we sort of forget about it forever. So now you've brought up Bad Wolf. Obviously, in the playground on Earth, the bad wolf thing appears everywhere and suddenly it's a message that is sent to Rose. Is that what she says? A yeah. message. And so this is the first time that it's sort of – well, actually, no, it's mentioned before this, isn't it? Because the Doctor has a conversation with the Emperor Dalek. It's one of those things, like last week, where the two different plot strands are running in parallel and Rose and the Doctor both find out – that Bad Wolf isn't what they thought it was at sort of roughly the same time in the episode. I find it interesting because you've been led up to believe that it was something and now it's suddenly changed. What will it actually be? Yeah. I think the Bad Wolf on the playground is incredibly cheap because it's clearly just done with chalk. (laughs) (laughs) I really like that she's whispering into so many little kiddies' ears, going, go on, do it, go on. (laughs) Throughout eternity, she's actually been fostering tagging. (laughs) She's the cause of it all right from the beginning. Banksy is actually Rose. So, Jack is exterminated. The Doctor's going to be exterminated. For the first and only time that I was actually sorry to see it happen. Every subsequent time. It's the same with Barham, and I've said it before when we early, early on when we were doing the old podcast. I only like him when he's in Doctor Who, and the character only works for me when he's in Doctor Who. As soon as he jumps into torture or anything else, it's awful. It's just too much cheese, as Mickey would say. <laughs> you can't, you can't, it's crotcher from Maggio performance levels. But in this, it's really poignant and lovely and, and really touching. And the fact that it's just done, as any great Kurosawa film does or The Magnificent Seven or any great Western, is just a, this posited hero, this chief identifier for our morality, just disappears and slides down a wall. There's nothing else to it because that's what meaningless death is. There's no ceremony. It's just wasteful. Yeah. It's that sort of thing too where they say exterminate and he says- I kind of figured. figured Yeah, kind of figured. Yes. (laughs) And that's it. Yes. Bang. And then, of course, it turns out he was holding his breath all the time. The big (laughs) cheat. (laughs) Oh, that's something new I've discovered. (laughs) That thing with the Daleks as well, at this point, they're all pouring out of the spaceships and destroying (gasps) the Earth. In the most exciting way that we've only imagined that that should have happened since we were four years of age. We've been living this moment in our little heads all this time. Although I have to say that most of the destruction of the Earth is realised by some sort of fairly low-res graphics. (laughs) (laughs) Australia melts, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, we're all gone. We have new continents back then, but they all look the same as the old continents. Yes. <laughs> so it's Pacifica and Europa and stuff. Is it like a hundred and something thousand years enough time for? No, actually, maybe shift? it's no. maybe it's just political. Uh, yeah, yeah, the American Alliance and Pacifica and Australasia. They were going they- a bit all well with it, all weren't they? Yeah, yeah. But that's what I was going to say about this story and why I liked it so much because. Russell, again, has picked up in Bad Wolf and really cemented it with this one. The chief alternatives in British writing of the 20th century were you have – and it's always been dystopian because the Brits really get how awful society can be. They always know that what they've got is quite thin and actually 
not that fun anyway. So that's they why they write such a Brexit. <laughs> exactly, which is why, well, yeah, that's what I was going with it. This is why they write such great dystopian fiction. You've got Orwell on one side saying it's militarised and conditioned and very programmed and obvious. And then you've got Huxley saying, no, 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 it's going to be exactly like that, but you won't feel it because you'll be anaesthetised yeah. with sugary sweetness and affable vaporousness. Yeah. And that's exactly how we are living right now. The Daleks are climate change. <laughs> well, or Theresa May or whatever else you want to see it. But really, they're just about the threat that none of us are admitting. Well, remember last episode, like the whole planet's atmosphere was destroyed. You couldn't breathe outside. Mm. There's smog storms and stuff like that. Mm. And I think that climate change was clearly sort of a living concern in 2005. But obviously, since then, the people in charge have seen reason and uh, sorted it out once and for all yeah. 12 years later. Yeah. But yeah, I think the Daleks as climate change and having the Daleks come in and just destroy the world. And the Doctor doesn't really do anything about it. And we never kind of hear about it again. In fact, the only reference to it is in Pudsy Cutaway, which is the little red <laughs> nose day sketch that first introduces David Tennant to the world as the Doctor, where he says that Captain Jack is back on Earth trying to rebuild human society or something like that, as if the Doctor had locked him out of the TARDIS because he'd fallen in love with a Scottish rebel of some kind. Oh, of course. I thought it was that Rose reversed all the incidents that had happened and and removed the Daleks from this moment of time and that none of that had ever happened. Oh, okay, that's possible. I always thought oh. it was a sort of weird kind of loose end and a sort of strangely downbeat mm. ending. I thought the same as you. I just thought that she brought him back because she had a connection to him and could see that. I didn't ever think that she'd she got rid of the Daleks as they were then, not... Reversing everything that happened on Earth. But then, as you say, if she does do that, which is resuscitation, then they're all indestructible and it's a planet of <laughs> Captain Scarlet. So that doesn't happen. We know that doesn't happen. So, yeah, what you're saying could be true. So there is this point. We know there are huge gaps in this Doctor Who universe of Russell's. So yeah. in the next time we see the Earth, it's the year five billion, isn't it? Yeah, so. yeah. So, I think that he doesn't worry about that and doesn't let that stop him from telling the story that he wants to tell. And I also think he's unleashing his inner cynic because, mm. again, we've said this before, on television everything's lovely and marvellous and, you know, he couldn't be more jovial and likeable, but there is a kind of deep vein of cynicism that runs through his writing in a really kind of upsetting way at times and so here he smashes the earth up as a sort of background to this story that he's trying to tell mm. yeah it is bleak and it did seem like a loose end to me when i first watched this uh and he clearly thought it was a loose end because he made that remark about it in pudsy cutaway which I am definitely calling it. <laughs> the um, the official name for it was Born Again. Yeah, that's crap. <laughs> Dear Rose turns up to rescue the Doctor with the time vortex running through her head and she has some superpowers to mm. stop the Dalek rays and she announces that she is the bad wolf and scatters herself message through time and space to send a message to herself so what did we think of that at the time because i thought it was crap why i just hated it at the time i just went to deus ex machina she, yes she mm. scatters this message she's the, this bad wolf message i just thought it was really weak and I just thought, that's it. I think that if Euripides does the deus ex machina, yeah. then Russell T. Davies can. Yeah. It is definitely a deus ex machina. I'm not sure that it makes sense. And certainly in subsequent commentaries, DVD commentaries, um, there was a wonderful commentary on Forest of the Dead with David Tennant and Russell and Moffat, and I think they gently rib Russell for the bad wolf thing because it doesn't quite work. It's a little bit sort of formless. Yeah. And her suddenly going, it's a message. Like, I'm not quite sure how she gets there. <laughs> James? Yes, it, no, it's crap. It is, it's a crap deus ex machina. 
But oh. it's also kind of fabulous because she's wearing all that gold body paint and um, she's and quoting quotes, her, own quotes songs. her own song lyrics. <laughs> uh, what? Uh, okay, explain. <laughs> I see everything. The sun, the moon, the day and night. Day and night, baby. <laughs> oh, and I've got that album too, people. So oh, I, I should love know that this. song. <laughs> it is actually a very good song. I might have to recommend it. Remind me. Um, that's very, it's very clever of you, Jim. I'm surprised you didn't notice. That's the first thing I noticed when I was watching this episode in 2005. Was oh my god, it's a Billy Piper song. I've actually changed my tune on this over the years, and I think part of changing the tune is what happens in season four or whenever they refer back to the bad wolf whether it be bad wolf bay or that message that she sends in turn left it suddenly has a big resonance Mm. and very emotional and very impactful so down the track it's influenced me to actually quite like this yes it's a little bit Mm. as you say um seems very rushed and and that's it but i actually quite like it now I absolutely don't object to that way of resolving the story no. because it's all been set up. It all makes sense. It has consequences. It's really emotional. I think it's wonderful. And I think that scene is absolutely lovely. The only bit I don't quite buy is that she gets the message that she can go back from Bad Wolf being written in chalk on that playground. Why Bad Wolf? Like, you know. Oh, well, I mean, it is Bad Wolf because it's something linked to that time and place. It's a message from Satellite 5 in that year. You hmm. don't believe that she was actually the Rupert Murdoch all the time. Yeah. <laughs> created Bad Wolf TV. Mm, Bad no. Wolf Media Enterprises. No, I actually think that she gets the word from them and then scatters it through the rest of the series. Mm. And and the other thing that I think is good is it's the first time we very definitely get things happening and having consequences earlier in the show. And we're about to have that in series three where the master dematerializes in episode 11 and rematerializes in an earlier Christmas special. And I think that's amazing. Mm. Like, I think that's absolutely incredible. So he's definitely had a second go at this idea and done it a bit better. But I think this is still pretty good. And then Moffat will do it constantly oh, for yeah. seven Every- years. <laughs> well, I was going to say that Russell's playing the long game with that one. <laughs> yeah. But I won't. <laughs> <laughs> so she saves the day. And then uh, she needs a doctor <laughs> to kiss her so that all the new fans will be satisfied. And the old might not be tongue. out. <laughs> <laughs> we forgot the other kiss. Oh, Captain Jack saying goodbye to Rose and the doctor. Yeah. Barrowman made sure when filming that scene that he kissed them exactly the same. The same. Yeah. To show that this is a, an enlightened guy from the future who doesn't have hang-ups like we do now. There's also a great story about that where, like, when he kissed Eccleston, there's, there was one take where he just didn't stop. And he just keeps snogging his face off until they fall, fall in a heap on the floor. Were they laughing? <laughs> yes. Well, it's good to know that Chris was having a fun time on the set. For at least a moment, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, he had everyone together. They were doing a bit of a Pertwee for him. So his favourite director, yeah. the, the people around him that he liked. I, mean, I know that people would have worked well with him and wished him the very best. He did a beautiful job for everyone. And he worked oh, yeah. damn hard on this. He yeah. really cared. He's a perfectionist and perfectionists are the first people to feel downtrodden and hurt and affronted because those le- those levels, you never really reach them. Yeah. But he, he has moments where he pretty much does. He actually really does. Yeah. Oh, no, I think he's yeah. incredible. More of this uh, in our Eccleston retrospective, which will just be lousy with panegyric, I think. <laughs> yes, I'll take two. Thank you. <laughs> and, a, and a scotch. Thank so you. the doctor does kiss Rose in order to extract the time vortex from her head. And just because he loves her as well. And Really? Yes, absolutely. I hate... You know, there's that, well, in yes. fact, the Doctor is a Time Lord from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Constorberus, and they don't kiss. They just squeeze one another's left elbows. And this is purely for a science fiction reason. It's a kiss. So even if there's a science fiction reason for it, it's a kiss, you know. 
Um, and so he loves her and she's done all of this stuff. She's nearly sacrificed her life to save him. Not to save the world because they don't manage to do that, but to save him. I feel like a naughty schoolboy there. Yes, I'm telling you off. So yes. It's definitely a kiss. They're in love and uh, they're kissing as well. I'd just like to say that I actually don't believe that at all. And I don't, it doesn't sit well with me. They shouldn't be kissing ever. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just sucking her golden essence out. <laughs> <laughs> You've said this before, Richard, I think. It is don't snog the companions. It's yucky. I don't Boff know if it's simply, to quote our Nathan, is, if it's not lampshading the telly movie. Or did Russell feel, I have to acknowledge this is what television is now. We have intimacy. Yeah. We can't have Dr. Magnus Pike in space anymore. No. There actually has to be, you know, a dental hygiene and a, and a willingness to engage. He's not a neutered public schoolboy. No, we that. haven't got Matt Smith. No, yet, that's no. right. But also, you know, he loves Rose. That doesn't mean that they're going to shag or anything like that, but it means that he really loves her. And so kissing her is an expression of his love for her as much as it is about sucking out her golden juicy essence. <laughs> God, you can't keep that in. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> Yours was worse. Juicy essence. I'm just Richard, does, Richard, Richard, I'm ignoring this, listeners. Richard, does, does it sit well with you or not? What, the kissy facey. Yes. I'm trying to picture anyone up front mouth snogging Billy Hartnell when they're saying goodbye. Can I, I just can't see it happening. Uh, no, it really doesn't because I think – Although it does work in this, and I'm completely fine with it, but if we're looking at it from a w- wider angle, it's... He's 900 years old. She's supposed to be 19. Yeah, but what is age? What is yes. age but where you are in your body right now and the amount of hormones you've got? So his body's not that old. We, we're not suggesting that Captain Jack kiss the Doctor for science fiction reasons. He kissed him, <laughs> he kissed him goodbye. <laughs> and so... The kiss doesn't have to mean we're snogging, but, you know, he doesn't do a Vulcan mind meld and put his fingers on her temples. You know he why it works? does actually kiss her. Yeah, and you're right. You know why it works? Because Eccles has been given an arc and he's worked beautifully with it. Yeah. There is no way the Doctor of Rose would have done anything. Even holding a hand was oh, it's a bit out there yeah. for him. It was. It yeah. was. That, and that was really one of the first tactile moments. You've seen, okay, Nicola and Colin were always trying to infuse humanity into a relationship that didn't really seem to have very much written into it at all. But they were trying to do that sort of thing. Certainly by Mysterious Planet, that was really quite lovely and jolly because they knew that characters, if it's going to work, there has to be some connection that the audience can also enjoy. So, but Eccles did it really beautifully coming out of, we know he's a war hero. What he is, he, is a lot of lads in the UK as well, but coming back from a war zone. Now, the British had troops stationed overseas and always have done. He's in Afghanistan. He he is... What is the Martin Freeman of our show, (laughs) by any other way. He's suffering from PTSD. Yeah, he definitely is. Mm. Definitely is. I just wanted to say, like, with the kiss thing, I have a lot of baggage from Classic Who because that's what I'm used to. Yeah. And so I was never comfortable with the kissing in the telly movie. Yeah. Oh, it was awful. And, and, <laughs> but I do buy it here. I don't yeah. like necessarily seeing it often, but I'm okay with it. I just mm. like to clarify that. <laughs> Even though I was berated, like, for that point, Nathan, um, no. <laughs> I don't mind it. I do find it really Interesting that he seems to have the vortex in him for like all of three seconds compared to how long it runs through Billy. Yeah. And she seems to come out of it completely fine, but he doesn't. Maybe it's because he has to return it out yeah. of uh, out of an essence. It's all good very know, sticky wickets here, isn't it? But I do just have a problem with how short he contains it for. I just wanted to see Oh, well, he's a bloke from the north, you know. They don't muck around. So the Dalek Emperor asks him whether he is a coward or a killer. And then we have, I think, possibly a defining moment for Christopher Eccleston as the Doctor. He gets a redo. He's put in a position that's identical with the position that we assume that he was in in the Time War, where he got to press a button to destroy the Daleks and his own people, and the decision that he made was to do that. 
and he has learned since then, and he gets the chance to reenact it, that that wasn't what he should have done. Mm. It's so important. Yeah, I think this, even before Day of the Doctor, we've had a reenactment of that crucial moment in the Time War and we get it here and his decision so is different. Done. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Nicely and put, Nathan. No, because yeah. he's going to wipe out the entire world, isn't he? Mm. There's not enough time to calibrate or whatever mm. The, mm. the Delta Wave thing. So that's his choice. Hail the Doctor, the great exterminator. Yeah. Well, we've already seen mm. our friend the Dalek from Dalek, our eponymous Dalek, accuse the Doctor of being like a Dalek. And now we get the Emperor doing the same thing. And he realises that he's decision to destroy his home planet and all of the Daleks was the wrong one, that he can't do that. Even if it needs to be done, even if morally speaking it's the right decision, it's such a morally toxic thing to do. Beyond the utilitarian argument uh, is another argument about whether you're going to be the agent of that or not. I actually think, though, that it does suffer a bit from being rather undramatically directed and scored. I don't know that it is. It certainly still strikes the heartstrings. I was watching it again today after so many years thinking, yeah, I would have done it and I would have Mm. taken on that karmic backlodge and, you know, paid for it in however many lives hence because it was the right thing to do. But also in the context of, of these two episodes, like the Doctor's already given a gun back earlier. And so here mm. again, it's showcasing that he's not willing just to take life for the sake of but, taking life. But, but it's not fresh for him. He's already done that. Yes. Yeah. He's done that before. And he doesn't want to repeat the same mistake. I think that's it. He can only bring himself to do it once. I don't this is think- a Buddhist parable. Yeah. Have we ever mentioned that before? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a trolley problem because there's more than sort of consequentialism in the sort of moral calculus. It is kind of the wrong thing to do because of what it will do to you, because of the kind of person but you this become. This is the point, and that's the beauty of it. He says, yeah. I'm willing to take on the great pain of the rest of the world and be worse than everyone because it will ultimately spare. Look how far he's grown from being Tom from that fourth doctor who said, I can't put these fuse wires together because, you know, it's a couple of fuse wires and, yes, Mm. all of that sort of thing. Well, you've actually faced your moral responsibility, which is, yes, your ego is not bigger than this situation and you actually do have to sublimate yourself. Mm. Like, I don't think that the story wants to come down on a particular side or anything Do we applaud him for doing it or is he actually just copping out? Is he doing another Tom? Is he doing another Tom and he's actually learnt nothing? Because his moral duty was to protect these people from this future. And so, in fact, he's simply gone back. Oh, he's wasted five lives. <laughs> but it's one of these things where there isn't a right decision. When he destroys Gallifrey, he decides one way and but becomes you know, a mass yeah, murderer. He, he just listened to your podcast and said what you think about <laughs> That's Gallifrey. Right, all those sofas. And then he gets to make the decision again. And again, it's the wrong decision because he just leaves Earth to be destroyed and who knows what's going to happen. Well, in fact, Rose, much like Garmin before her, comes <laughs> in and, you know, takes the need for the decision away and it's only in Moffat's era where he gets to kind of Kobayashi Maru that dilemma and find a third cheat way out of it Mm. Um, but I like that that becomes live we don't get to see the Doctor in the Time War but we do get to see him confronted with that same decision and so did it that brings us to the end moments in the TARDIS with Christopher and Billy and the whole regeneration uh, which has come about because Christopher is not continuing on to a second series. This time when I was watching it, I was acutely aware that they didn't seem to be in the room together. Uh, was it, were they not in the room together at all? Tennant's definitely not in the room with Billy. Um, I knew that, but I thought that they were both in that console room together. So, I think they are in the same shot initially. She wakes up. But that whole conversation where they're speaking to one another across the TARDIS and they're in completely separate shots, whether they're not there in the same room or whether Ahern is directing it so that it's not jarring when suddenly her and Tennant aren't in the room together, I don't know. But uh, it did look a bit jarring, I think. They wrote an alternative version of that scene as a red herring to... uh, try and keep people off the scent that 
uh, Eccleston was leaving. Where, <laughs> How um, did that work out? <laughs> whoops. Um, where they actually head off to Barcelona. There's no regeneration. And the closing of the whole series was supposed to be the TARDIS having scanned rows and a little message coming up saying life form dying. What you were saying before about the time vortex not damaging her but killing him, Russell turned that on his head in the right. the, the scene that they filmed or were going to film to release on the like, on the press tapes. Right. Okay. Um, like was actually dealing with the fact that, well, no, it would kill her. I actually didn't know whether they would get to do a proper regeneration scene. I didn't know whether it would be like Colin saying carrot juice, carrot juice, carrot juice, and then we would just turn up the next season with a new doctor because there was kind of no way of knowing what the production was like. plants a sulfured kiss on the console. (laughs) He was poisoned by carrot juice and an exercise bike. (laughs) You know, I didn't know how whether his resignation had been a surprise, whether it had been announced after the series was in the can or what. You know, there was kind of no way of knowing. And so I was watching this and I remember being hugely delighted that we did seem to be getting Mm. a regeneration scene. In the series Bible, Russell says that there's no need to introduce the idea of regeneration because he doesn't anticipate that he's going to be changing cast every year. But... I think it does a, a pretty good job of kind of selling it to viewers. But can you imagine being a new series fan and then he's suddenly just talking about the fact that all the cells in his body are dying and he has this little trick and then it all hell breaks loose with that, that explosion. Like you'd be going, what the hell is going on? And then there's another person there. I liked it back in the good old days where they would just recast the Doctor and not really tell you why. And I think ever since they explained it first in the War Games and then again in Planet of the Spiders, the whole thing kind of lost its mystery. I'd prefer to think of the Doctor as someone who just gets recast every three (laughs) years or so. Um, But I think he does kind of a deft job of introducing that whole concept of regeneration. And I look forward to a future time where, you know, the Doctor is regenerated and he has no head. Oh, that's right. <laughs> or no nose or something. <laughs> no, that's the dogs on Barcelona. <laughs> oh, I'm getting confused again. Yeah, no, it, like that whole dialogue is, is, I think, sells it well. And Christopher was always going to get to say the word fantastic a number yeah. of times right there at the end. It's his catchphrase. In fact, that was one of the things that I thought I would most miss when Tennant took over because I loved the fact that the Doctor thought everything was fantastic and I thought that that wouldn't survive into Tennant. And I think an original draft of The Christmas Invasion had a thread where he kept trying to say fantastic and not being very good at it, Uh, eventually dropping it. It didn't work and so he just gave it up. That's right. Mm. There we go. Christopher's gone. David's there with a bit of dialogue. We'll find out what we think of the new guy in a few commentaries' time. I think his catchphrase is going to be Barcelona. It's going to be new teeth. (laughs) That's weird. (laughs) It's time for Picks of the Week, and I'm going to let other people go first so that I have time to think of one. So my pick of the week... On the Time War Dalek theme is Series 6 of the uh, Big Finish Gallifrey series. I really like Gallifrey. I do it's too. Kind of, it's Gary Russell's own little project, yeah, that's it's, why. Yeah, it's, it's Gary it's Gary all over it. Doing the original House of Cards, mm, but in of- space and time. <laughs> um, and frogs. They're really sort of fun and twisty and turny and you know it's lala ward and louise jameson for god's sake it's it's always good even if it's crap um but that ties into in in a big way ties into the time war and how it started but i can't say any more than that because it'll ruin it for you i look forward to listening to those sometime in 2043 (laughs) my pick of the week is for classic series fans or for new series fans who'd like to go back and visit the classic series for when the Daleks were Daleks and had great dialogue between them and 
weren't ruled by Davros. Mm. And the Doctor had a friend who made a new friend on the planet Exelon. So my pick of the week is the John Pertwee classic, Death to the Daleks. Oh. Go and enjoy. Oh, that's the first one I ever saw. Richard? Oh, well, mine I've already mentioned. It's Marina Warner's writing, if you want to look at what comes before this. And if you really like to look at, you know, the stuff that goes underneath. She's written some really good ones. Signs and Wonders I really liked. Oh, what else? Really good ones if you want to look at how why people write this way and what's underneath it and where it's all coming from. So um, No Go the Bogeyman is one of my favourites and it's about male dark archetypes in in fiction and mythology. Um, but then Monuments and Maidens is the feminine one. I'd just go to her for any of the ones. The, the overarching ones, The Lost Father's really good. Yeah, take that, George Lucas. Myths of Our Time, Alone of All Her Sex. Sign- signs and Wonders. I go and look at Signs and Wonders. It's just if you want to do further reading or just listen to Big finish you don't have to work that hard <laughs> oh i've just realized my other pick of the week yes, must be billy this. piper's day and night album where you can listen to all of the lyrics to all of the songs and see where they fit into series one and two of doctor do they really <laughs> do they really though? if you want to <laughs> it's, a, it's a little known fact that uh, russell t davis actually based bad wolf and the parting of the ways Stop on it. that album Stop <laughs> <it>. <laughs> All right, so my one is a complete cheat and it's also an opportunity to make up for how mean I am to James all the time. We have a new Doctor Who flashcast. It's called Jodie Into Terror. And what we do is we just Skype in uh, like proper podcasting professionals every week for sort of about 20 minutes and talk about our sort of hot takes, our first impressions uh, of Series 11. James has designed a spectacular website for us and a logo, which I am hugely, hugely delighted by. And Welsh Uh, socks. And any second now, I'm going to make him edit it all from now on. So, uh, (laughs) But James and James's husband, Jason and Richard and a few others are kind of the motive force behind us doing that. Uh, The alternative would have been us reaching Series 11 at some time in 2023, uh, by which time we would be doing it underwater in school. Uber gear. (laughs) That's it. It's mainly to get us, well, me out of the house. (laughs) That's it. This is why he's constantly suggesting podcast Mm. projects, you see. (laughs) We were going to call that one the underweening menace. (laughs) The overweening menace. (laughs) The underwhelming menace. Yes. (laughs) So that's at uh, jodyintoterror.com and uh, Apple Podcasts and stuff Stuff. like that. Mm. Mm. I'm sad he's gone. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got one more episode and we'll certainly be going on about how great he was because he really was. uh, That year's a massively special year, I think, certainly for me. And uh, I look forward to uh, telling Todd who uh, from that season I would snog, marry or avoid. Listener, that's all the time and emotional energy that we have this week. We'll be back next time for our Christopher Eccleston retrospective. In the meantime, you can find us at flightthroughentirety.com, Flight Through Entirety on Facebook and Apple Podcasts, and at FTE Podcast on Twitter. Over on Bondfinger, you can find highly expert and deeply considered commentaries on every film in the James Bond franchise. That's bondfinger.com, Bondfinger on Facebook and Apple Podcasts, and at Bondfingercast on Twitter. And Casino Royale. Dot infinitum. <laughs> Any number of versions of that. Until next time, may your next holiday in Barcelona be as hilarious as the doctor makes it sound. Thank you very much for listening and good night. See you soon. Good night. How does he smell? <laughs> <laughs> That was Flight Through Entirety, starring Todd Bealby, Nathan Bottomley, James Selwood and Richard Stone. Theme arrangement by Cameron Lamb, strings performance by Jane Orberg. This episode, Fostering Tagging, was recorded on the 14th of October 2018 and released on the 18th of November. 
counteract our relentless positivity over the past few weeks, I'll now be travelling backward in time to scatter the word tiresome throughout the last 13 episodes. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, so, interesting tidbit, mm. uh, which we can probably use for the tag. <laughs> um, so, um, in, in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire... The character, the character of Buddy Crouch Jr. is like has his soul sucked out by a Dementor in in a chapter called "The Parting of the Ways." Uh, ooh, spooky! Is Buddy Crouch Jr. played by David, David Tennant? Tennant? Yes. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Wow. Introducing David that, Tennant as the Doctor. What year did that film and book come out? The, the book, book was two thousand and. Ooh, the film came out after Doctor Who. Yeah, I don't know. but the book was out. By that point, I think. But hang on. Parting of the ways, Buddy Crouch being tenant. No, it's a coincidence. Yeah, it's it's a, no, it's a total be. coincidence. It's yeah. not a deliberate reference. It's just it's just a coincidence. <laughs> no, J.K. Rowling scattered it back through time. She did. <laughs> oh, she good did. on her. She She's... was the golden suck facing essence all the time. <laughs> it's interesting, Nathan, that you just said um, – Introducing David Tennant as the Doctor. Well, actually, introducing David Tennant as Doctor Who like uh, is in the credits and is the final time that I think he's referenced as Doctor Who because didn't David uh, yeah. say that he's actually the Doctor? Yeah. <laughs> Fanboy. <laughs> um, I don't agree with that because he was Doctor Who for the first 18 years and should have remained Doctor Who. I, I love the fact when it came back it was Doctor Who. It's not called the Doctor, is it? <laughs> I, think, I think I recall you at the time... Um, Todd saying, saying, well, it went to crap when um, they dropped Doctor Who from the end titles. It's going to be cancelled. <laughs> well, that still could happen, couldn't it, <laughs> listeners? But uh, there we go. All right. 